0: Good afternoon, and wel- welcome. Welcome to our our, pro- our program on judicial uh, nominations, and we are honored today to to start out uh, uh, with an address by uh, a Senator Arlen Specter. Uh, this, the senator is, you know, uh, certainly, as I say, needs no introduction, um, and I, I will I will give him a, I will give him therefore only a very brief one. Uh, uh, he's been a senator since 1980. Uh, the longest-serving senator, I believe, in Pennsylvania history. Uh, uh, he, I, I've heard his name since the 1960s when I used to, when I was growing up, listen to KYW radio on occasion back when you were district attorney and you were in the news all the time, almost as much as you are today. Uh, and uh, he is someone I suspect people from all, all sides would say if you're in a good, tough, hard-nosed political battle, He's someone you want, want on your side. He has had a uh, quite a record over the years on, in, on Capitol Hill, and he's uh, really been extremely effective in uh, in recent years. Uh, last few years, he's been chair of the Judiciary Committee. He ended up chairing uh, the first two Supreme Court nominations so we've had in over over 10 years. I think why they recognize as having been a, a, a very fair chairman and having having done a very good job on the process uh he has as i say just been a uh, major major force in the senate in his time there. i think one quote i saw about him um uh said that he had uh, more power and influence than uh than many sovereign countries and, uh perhaps that's a uh A good place to ask you to give a welcome to our speaker today, Senator Arlen Spector.
1: Thank you very much for uh, putting me into the sovereign nation category. (laughs) The Philadelphia Inquirer did write that line. Uh, but it's totally taken out of context by that very generous uh, introduction. They had a lot of other things to say about me, not quite so complimentary. The uh, Judiciary Committee is a real battleground. And uh, when you have uh, on the left... Actually, seated there, uh, Kennedy and Biden and Schumer and Durbin and Leahy, uh, Feingold, uh, and on the correct side, not the right side, but the correct side, okay. you have, uh, Coburn and, uh, uh, Cornyn and, uh, uh Grassley and, uh, Sessions and, uh, Oren. It's, uh, quite a battleground to be in the center, and we, Steered our way clear on the Supreme Court nominations, as you know. And uh, there's a real overhang from uh, some uh, second thoughts about not filibustering Justice Alito. They tried very hard to find some traction to do that. And they're thinking about uh, 1991 when they didn't filibuster Justice Thomas, and they're still talking about that from time to time, a 52 to 48 vote. And uh, they were really struggling for uh, some traction. And you may recall when uh, Senator Kennedy interrupted the proceedings and moved to go into executive session to get uh, uh, the Alito records from the concerned alumni of Princeton. And... uh, Uh, I said to him, well, if you really were serious about it, why didn't you mention it when we were in the hall instead of springing it in the middle of this uh, proceeding? Or why didn't you mention it in the Senate gym? Of course, I had to point out that Senator Senator Kennedy hadn't been in the the Senate gym since the Johnson administration. (laughs) that was the Andrew Johnson administration <laughs> uh, but on a very serious note uh, it is a it is a real battleground uh, and we're battling it uh, day by day the statistics are that in the final 2 years of the Clinton administration there were 15 circuit judges confirmed and 57 district court judges and so far in the 110th congress only 6 Nominees for the circuit by President Bush have been confirmed. Thirty-four district judges. So we've got to get uh, nine more this year if we're to meet uh, the Clinton standard, and that's what we're pushing for. That's the that's the standard. Uh, during eight years of Clinton, he had 65 circuit judges confirmed, 305 district judges, and President Bush has 57 circuit judges and 200 and. Thirty-seven district judges. Uh, There are still uh, some battle scars when we were successful in confirming Bill Pryor and Janice Rogers-Brown and Priscilla Owen coming out of the filibusters early in my chairmanship. And uh, uh, we're trying to battle through. We have uh, uh, 14 circuit vacancies and uh, 10 uh, nominations pending. And some of the problems we're trying to work through, now, the President uh, has not followed Senator Warner's recommendations, and uh, you can't uh, get a nomination processed if you don't uh, honor the views of the Republican Senator uh, in the district. And there's no doubt that the Democrats are waiting for next year, they uh, uh think they have a great opportunity. Well, it might not be as great as they think. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in this topsy turvy presidential race. If, uh, Depending on how it works out, uh, it may not be a year for the Democrats, which they're counting on very heavily. And the New Jersey senators are pretty blunt waiting for next year. And so are the Rhode Island senators. And in Michigan, they want to have a, commission-appointed. They don't like the constitutional provision that gives the authority to the president to nominate federal judges. But we're not going to change the Constitution for Michigan. But uh, on the other hand, there is a stalemate. And uh, we've got a great candidate in uh, Peter Kiesler for uh, the 10th D.C. Circuit. It's pretty hard to find a better candidate than Peter Kiesler. Of course, that's... uh, part of his problem. He's too good. If he gets the D.C. Circuit, they're worried he's going to be a nominee for the Supreme Court. So the checkers game is played way down the line. And uh, that issue is complicated by the fact that uh, uh, we took, we Republicans took, the or some of the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee took the position that we ought not to fill the vacant seats on the District of Columbia Circuit Court. And one of those has now gone to uh, the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the chessboard uh, has multi-layers. It's complicated all by itself. And uh, there's a lot of uh, disagreements. Try to get a district court judge in Louisiana. Let me tell you, if there's any place that needs to fill a vacancy in the district court, it's Louisiana with their pileup and litigation on the hurricane and uh, trying to map some strategy with uh, uh, Senator Vitter. And the relationship between the two Louisiana senators are not exactly copacetic. (laughs) And uh, I won't tell you any more. I know all of this is off the record. (laughs) Nobody will repeat anything I said. And, uh, And there's no film in that camera, so I, I feel very much at liberty to share all the inside, inside confidences with you. Sat down with Senator Elizabeth Dole yesterday about the forcer that She's got a candidate who's been waiting uh, practically forever. Uh, I sent uh, Senator Leahy a, a uh, well-constructed, single-space, two-page letter. I usually write very short letters because nobody reads long letters. And a couple of days later, I got a single-space four-page letter. And I think it's better not to publish the letters if uh, we want to maintain a conversational dialogue uh, between the Senator Leahy and myself. And we're working very hard to smooth the bumps, and I'm concentrating right now on on uh, Robert Conrad and uh, Katharina. Hayes and uh Steve Matthews and uh, uh Gene Pratter all of whom are close to being right. Gene Pratter not quite, but the other three are on the list and trying to trying to move it a step at a time. And uh we had a big victory with uh, Judge Leslie Southwick. Big victory. Uh Judge uh, should have been uh, Wallace is in the audience here today. Had a real battle uh there and uh we sat down and talked at the outset, and uh, I told him what the trials and tribulations were going to be. He said he wanted to go, knowing the uh, the difficulties, had a long conversation, and then I spent 30 minutes on direct examination as chairman. Went over under the trial lawyer's practice of going into all the problems so that uh, they wouldn't be disclosed somewhere somewhere later. No reason why uh, uh, he shouldn't have been Judge Wallace. No reason at all. Uh, but uh, 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 confirming uh, a nominee with uh, uh, his uh, credentials was uh, nearly impossible in the Fifth Circuit. And when uh, Leslie Southwick came up with the kind of a record he had, and uh, two arguments on concurring opinions and volunteering to go to Iraq. You couldn't find a better appellate, state appellate court judge, couldn't find a better poster child for confirmation to the Circuit and Fifth Circuit. And uh, uh, thanks to uh, help from the Federalist Society and the various organizations, we had a whole series of news conferences, really uh, pressing very hard. And finally, we got uh, a little give, and Senator Feinstein uh, couldn't uh, resist acknowledging uh, how uh, how good Leslie Southwick was, and we got him confirmed. And there are some objections now pending as to some of the others. Jean Pratter, I wrote the statistics down before coming over, has written uh, 278 opinions. There have been 103 appeals, and she's had two reversals and one vacating uh, of one of her uh, judgments well that's a that's a pretty good record for a, for a district court judge and uh, I've known her for years as a practicing member of the Philadelphia bar and she's really very well qualified but uh, there's opposition so uh, uh, so we will uh, uh, so we will see uh, on a collateral issue which has uh, some bearing on what we're talking about uh, the judicial pay, bill is on the Senate uh, calendar for today. And uh, the judges ought to be getting, we ought to have have better compensation. And one of the interesting parts of my job is to be lobbied by Supreme Court justices. (laughs) Pretty interesting when you have an argument about whether the justice is going to come to my office. I don't have chambers. I don't know. I don't know how judges have chambers. I'd like to have it explained to me someday where I have only have an office. In fact, I have a hideaway office. It's even, even denigrated further than an office. But uh, at any rate, uh, we're having a lot of conversations. And uh, I brought up the subject of televising the Supreme Court. After listening for about an hour, I figure I'm entitled to three or four minutes of my own. And uh, I feel very strongly about televising the Supreme Court because I think people ought to understand what the Supreme Court does. I think people ought to understand how our system has evolved to give them uh, the final say on all of the cutting issues. And we talk a lot about wanting judges to interpret the law, interpret the Constitution, not to make social policy, but that is a concept not understood. Uh, President Bush did a good job. It was a key part of his campaign in 2004. And perhaps uh, uh, the real legacy for President Bush is going to be uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. And uh, uh, trying very, very hard to get, uh, uh, to, get, uh, uh, to get that done. I think if uh, we were successful in really informing the American people about what happens in the court system, And how Congress punts so many of the issues to the court ought to decide them, ought to decide them ourselves, legislators. But uh, we don't want to take the rap for a lot of very hard votes. End up uh, sending them across uh, across the street to uh, to the Supreme Court. I regret that I can't stay for the uh, panel. We have the stimulus package on the floor this afternoon. Trying to find our way through that morass. And we have FISA waiting in the wings, trying to give the National Intelligence Service an extension on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act on the important information they're getting from their, uh, their uh, uh, electronic surveillance. But I'm glad to, to respond to some questions. I Always add promptly after saying I'm glad to respond to questions, to say that I'm equally glad not to respond to questions. <laughs> but uh, it's up to you. Yes. Senator, do you uh,
2: regret the, uh, for lack of a better title, the Gang of 14 arrangement that was uh, um, achieved a the previous session, previous uh, Congress?
1: No, I, uh, I don't. Uh, Uh, Because we uh, got uh, uh, Bill Pryor and uh, Janice Rogers-Brown and uh, and Priscilla Owens. And uh, we'd still be arguing about it if we hadn't found some way to cut through the morass. And if we hadn't gotten that done, uh, we wouldn't have gotten uh, Chief Justice Roberts and wouldn't have gotten Justice Alito. Uh, The... the, uh, uh, the, the disagreements get very, very intense, and I don't want to call them enmities or uh, uh, categorize them the, beyond the scope. Uh, but uh, uh, I was not—I uh, was chairman, and I attended the meetings. But I thought I should not be part of the Gang of Fourteen. I had too many responsibilities to, to preside uh, and not to uh, not to not to vote or not to. Uh, have too heavy a hand, uh, but uh, you had uh, uh, you had the uh, uh, majority leader uh, Bill Frith, coming to the meetings, and you had the minority leader uh, Harry Reid coming to the meetings, and uh, they'd pretty much abdicated what they were doing as leaders. They were going to somebody else's hands, and I think if you had taken uh, a private poll. Among the 100 senators, the Democrats wouldn't have filibustered and there wasn't uh, unanimous support for the constitutional or nuclear option. They're really groping. And uh, we gave up a little. We got a lot more in the deal than we gave up. Uh, judges I just mentioned, Brown and, and Pryor and uh, Priscilla Owens, and then we got the big guys. So we came out ahead on that deal. Yes? that all, yeah. Oh, yes, ma'am. Do you support the uh, judicial
3: pay bill that's currently
1: before the Senate Judiciary Committee? Well, uh, happily, there are so many before the Judiciary <laughs> Committee. I don't have to take a take a position. So uh well talking about bill 1638. Well, bill 1638. I know all the bills up to
3: 1637,
1: but <laughs> my, my, my reading list isn't. <laughs> Uh, we're going to hassle it out. I don't really want to say. I, I want to give them a race where they won't be coming back too soon, and I also want to eliminate some of the perks. I want a lot of transparency uh, in what the judges in what the judges do, uh, um, and I'd like to I'd like to get it done without uh, spending two years uh, on it. So uh, we're, we're 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 talking.
3: Yes. First and foremost, I agree with your take on the Gang of 14. I think because of that, I know this might not be the crowd to say it in, but I think because of that, we did get the judges that we have. But, uh, a I'm question, glad to have at
1: least one supporter yeah, on the Gang of definitely. 14. I, I'm
3: not unused to saying
1: things in crowds where they're unpopular. I, that's part of my pay grade. <laughs>
4: Quick question for you. What are some practical steps that you think that, that you can take? Because there is this logjam in the Senate Judiciary Committee. I know that, that things have been tossed around as whether – a two-hour rule on the Senate floor denying quorum in committee. I mean, it seems like we are at a point where the clock is running out. What do you think are some practical steps that we can take to kind of shake Patrick Leahy and gang loose?
1: Well, uh, we've considered about all the options. One option we've considered uh, uh, is not showing up at the Judiciary Committee meetings, so the Judiciary Committee can't function. And then you mentioned the two-hour rule to object to any committee meeting which uh, runs longer than two hours after the Senate goes into session, uh, which would pretty well uh, tie up uh, uh, the Senate. Uh, uh, then you start adjourning the Senate in midday so committee meetings can go on. they 've had to do that. and then we've considered tying up the entire Senate. We can do that too. Any one of us can tie up the entire Senate, call for a reading of the journal every day. There are a lot of easy ways to tie up the Senate. And uh, we're, we're at a period where uh, we're trying to have some uh, a breakthrough and conciliation, trying to work with the president on the stimulus package and uh, uh, try, uh, holding off on the contempt citations, for example. The House was about to take those up, and not wanting to put uh, Harriet Myers in leg irons uh, uh, while we're trying to get the stimulus package through. Uh, and they're all uh, they're all on the table, and uh, and meanwhile, uh, uh, a lot of us uh, are talking, trying to trying to work through these issues, trying to get people confirmed. If we have taken one at a time, like Southwick, we can we can do that too. We can do that too, and, and we're prepared to do it. Everybody got an easy question. Listen, let me thank you for. Uh, uh, all you do for the federal society. I spoke to the Pittsburgh chapter a few weeks ago. I'm talking to the Philadelphia chapter, and I was here for your giant uh, soiree last year. And uh, you practically had a quorum of the Supreme Court here. You had four four justices. Pretty uh, pretty impressive. Uh, pretty impressive showing for a group which has been in existence. Uh, You're relative newcomers from. The early 80s uh, on the legal political scene, and it's great to see what you're what you're doing. And uh, uh, the scholarship is uh, is very very important. I sometimes joke uh, that we have uh, 70 members of the bar in the United States Senate and five lawyers. (laughs) So, (laughs) strike that from the record. (laughs) So it's great to come before a group of people who uh, are are real scholars. Thank you all for inviting me.
0: Thank you very much, Senator. This meeting is co-sponsored by our D.C. Lawyers Chapter, and we have a tradition in the D.C. Lawyers Chapter of giving our speakers a copy of the Federalist Papers, and I would like to present that to you.
1: I'm pleased to tell you, this is not my first copy of the Federalist Station. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> we I'd we, we about the case, But thank you, Senator, very much.
0: Thank you, Senator. Could I ask our panel to come up to the uh, uh, table? Just very briefly, I want to introduce our moderator for our panel, uh david savage has been the longtime supreme court correspondent uh supreme court reporter for the los angeles times and we are d- delighted to have him here and i think without further ado i will turn it over to you
3: thank
5: you it's good to be with you i uh i've had uh, i wouldn't call it the pleasure of covering a lot of judiciary committee debates about uh, judges and that i go back to the office and we sit around talking. talk and I have a few friends who've covered the uh, Israeli-Palestinian, the so-called peace process. And I always think when we talk at lunch, it seems to be the same, rather similar thing, that everybody can point to 10 years back, but they did this to us. And, and uh, the other side says quite correctly, yes, but they did this to us, and, uh, and so on. it seems to go on for decades, and uh, if anything gets ever more uh, bitter. Um, we're going to try to have uh, fun with the topic today, and to the extent that we can. Um, we've got four uh, speakers I'm going to give a brief introduction for each of them and then um, we're going to go and sort of order it each of them we're going to say something for five or ten minutes and then we're going to try to just open it up to questions um, here are the uh, I think you probably know a little bit about some of all these Ed Whalen is the president of the ethics and public Policy center here in Washington he's a writer and commentator on constitutional law issues in the Supreme Court and I hope Many of you uh, read his uh, bench memos on the National Review online. They're one of the always uh, fun and uh, provocative. And, and uh, Ed's sort of a take no prisoners type of guy, <laughs> sort of tells you what he thinks. And I always find it quite interesting to read. He's, he's got, um, he's served in all three branches of government, which I think is quite interesting. He was a law clerk to Clifford Wallace in the Ninth Circuit for Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court. He was uh, on Capitol Hill, he was a counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he was also a lawyer in the office of legal counsel to Justice Department in the first uh, uh, Bush term. Next to him, uh, next to me right here, is Simon Heller. He's uh, now the legal director for the Alliance for Justice, heads its judicial selection process. I've known Simon for a while. He was a lawyer for many years, and in some of the abortion-related cases for the ACLU and the uh, Center for Reproductive Rights. The, uh, you probably know the Alliance for Justice. It's sort of a coalition of civil rights, civil liberties groups, unions. It's sort of the um, vast left-wing conspiracy on, the ju- on this issue of t- judicial confirmations. It's been fighting for 20 years or so to opposing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Republican uh, judges. So I'm sure you're at least familiar with the organization, although, as I say, Simon is somewhat of a newcomer. Um, Michael Wallace has agreed to be Mike Wallace for this uh, session. Uh, since we have two Michaels on the uh, panel, he kindly agreed to be Mike because he is Mike And to his uh, friends. He's a longtime lawyer from Mississippi who's done all sorts of commercial litigation, is also the general counsel for the Mississippi Republican Party. I see his name every couple of years as a case comes up from Mississippi involving either electoral districts or some election issue, and Mike's been involved with those for a a long number of years. He was in the late 70s a law clerk to uh, then Justice uh, Rehnquist, and uh, he's also worked for Trent Lott both in the House of Representatives and the Senate, and he also has, I think, a more of a personal story than anybody else here, maybe anybody else would want to have about the the, uh, perils of the uh, confirmation process, so I'm sure he'll say a little bit about that. And finally, on my right over here is Michael Gerhardt, who's a law professor at the University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill, a fine uh, school where I've spent a few delightful years. Um, Michael is a, is a scholar of many so- uh, topics, including um, impeachment and, and filibusters. Um, Ten years ago this month, uh, I think, was the time most of us learned the name Monica Lewinsky. And you sort of remember how that... <laughs> played out for the next year, and Michael was one of the nation's experts on, on the impeachment process. So all during the you know, CNN and whatnot, he was sort of both quoted in the press and frequently on TV talking about that subject. He's taught at uh, William and & Mary and uh, Duke and uh, Cornell and, um, as, as, as I say, is a real expert on the federal uh, judicial appointments process. So each of the speakers is going to take five or ten minutes. I said uh, I could bring a hook along after ten minutes, but they've instead said put up a sign that says two minutes, so I think I'll try that rather than using the hook. But uh, we're going to try to hold everybody to inside ten minutes. Ed, why don't you go first? Uh, thanks,
4: David, for your kind,
5: uh, your kind introduction.
4: Um, and thank you to all of you for being here. The current state of the judicial confirmation process can best be understood against the backdrop of events of the last seven years. I'd like to use my opening remarks to call attention to several respects in which the process has suffered severe degradation during this period. Now, let me emphasize at the outset that my position is not Senate Republicans good, Senate Democrats bad. If I had to encapsulate in a few words, it would instead be Senate Republicans bad, (laughs) Senate Democrats even worse. (laughs)
3: Uh,
4: But I hope this discussion will enable me to flesh out my criticisms of, of both sides. Let's begin with the filibusters of judicial nominees. Now, let me make clear at the outset that I I do not take the position that uh, judicial filibusters are unconstitutional. I think it's clear that uh, each House has plenary authority to set its own rules. Cloture rules are part of that. That said, it has uh, long been an established practice in the Senate not to filibuster judicial nominees. Until the presidency of George W. Bush, there had never been a partisan filibuster against a judicial nominee Indeed, the only previous instance of a filibuster of a judicial nominee occurred in 1968 when a broadly bipartisan filibuster with Democrats providing more than 65 percent of the votes needed to sustain the filibuster, prevented a final floor vote uh, on uh, President Johnson's efforts to uh, elevate Abe Fortas to Chief Justice. Now, during the Clinton administration, there were a grand total of four votes on cloture on proceeding to a final vote on confirmation. On judicial nominations, all four were supported by Republican leadership and then received more than 14 negative votes from Republican senators. But in 2003 and 2004, uh, when uh, after Democrats uh, lost the uh, narrow um, uh, majority they had uh, in the Senate, they unleashed the filibuster against President Bush's appellate court nominees and succeeded in in defeating some 20 cloture petitions on 10 different nominees, five of whom were never ultimately confirmed. Then, in January 2006, from the ski slopes of Davos, Switzerland, John Kerry launched a partisan filibuster against the Supreme Court nomination of Sam Alito. That effort failed, but it did garner 25 Democratic votes, including the votes of Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, and seven of the eight Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, when they were in the minority, Democrats defended the use of the filibuster uh, in violation of Senate practices as a critical tool in keeping the, minor- the majority in check. But lo and behold, once they had the majority, in October 2007, Democrats took their already unprecedented use of the filibuster to a new extreme as they pursued it for the first time uh, as a majority party against the nomination of Leslie Southwick. Thirty-eight Democrats voted to filibuster the nomination of Judge Southwick. Second uh, significant development uh, of the last uh, six, seven years uh, is the expanded blue slip policy that Senator Spector uh, implemented. Now, uh, Senator Specter deserves great credit for the Roberts and Alito hearings and also for his stalwart efforts on behalf of Judge Southwick. That said, I think uh, one real problem in uh, 2005 and 2006 is that Senator Spector adopted, or I guess we should say a period of adopted since the whole blue slip process is, is, is murky. Uh, An uh, unprecedented, expansive uh, uh, version of the blue slip policy. Now, let, let me go back a step. This blue slip practice gives senators influence over supposed home state judicial nominations. I say supposed because circuit court judgeships have no particular connection to the state in which the judge sits as opposed to, to, to other states in the same circuit. Under the policy that had been adopted by former Chairman Kennedy, Biden, and Hatch, The return of a negative blue slip would be given substantial weight, but a committee hearing and vote on the nomination would proceed. Senator Spector, Chairman Spector, instead made an unreturned or negative blue slip, uh, including from from the minority party, a barrier even to a hearing, and thus gave obstructionist Democrats all the leverage they needed. Third development, minor but revealing, uh, returning nominations during intercession recesses. Uh, during intersession recesses in 2006 in trust session Democrats t- took the unprecedented step of returning nominations to the White House thus requiring that nominations go back through the committee process again in other words a nomination would be pending on the floor ready for a vote Uh, uh, Democrats sent that back to the White House he then had to go through the weeks of of committee delay again not not once did Senate Republicans ever deny President Clinton the courtesy of holding nominations over during an intercession recess most remarkably when President Bush did his best to restore the status quo by simply resubmitting the nominations suddenly the media jumped all over him as though there was something extreme about resubmitting nominations that uh, had been returned in this unprecedented manner a clear slap in the face Senator Schumer exclaimed Fourth, uh, a remarkable number of negative votes against two extremely qualified nominees. Uh, I may discuss this in more detail later uh, if, if it comes up. But let's contrast the votes on John Roberts and Sam Alito, 78 to 22, and it would have been worse for John Roberts if people hadn't been saving their capital for Sam Alito, and then 58 to 42 on Alito with the votes in 1993 and 1994 on Ginsburg and Breyer, 96 to 3 and 87 to 9. There are some conventional explanations I think are quite faulty that try to um, just justify this, this uh, different treatment, and uh, perhaps we can look into those. Fifth, uh, the ABA uh, sunk to a new level. Now, the ABA, in some respects, uh, in, in lots of cases, performs responsibly. Uh, in one instance, uh, involving uh, my colleague here, Mike Wallace, uh, the ABA compounded bias, conflict of interest, manifest incompetence, a stacked committee, a violation of its own procedures, and cheap gamesmanship with what I have documented as flat-out perjury by the ABA committee chairwoman in testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, sixth, inordinate influence of outside groups on Democrats. Two quick examples. 2002, Democratic committee staffers indulged the request by the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, that a pending Sixth Circuit nomination be stalled in order to affect ongoing proceedings in the University of Michigan racial preferences case. Also, the uh, outside groups uh, pressured uh, uh, Democrats to oppose the nomination of Miguel Estrada precisely because he is Hispanic. Uh, And in 2007, uh, on Judge Southwick, everyone thought that Judge Southwick was a consensus nominee nominee uh, well qualified rating unanimously from the ABA. Committee of Democrats had already unanimously, unanimously approved him to a district court spot. Right on the eve of the hearing, uh, even when uh, Majority Leader Reed and uh, Chairman Leahy had assured the Republicans that, that Judge Southwick would be expeditiously confirmed, suddenly the left launched a scurrilous attack, and lo and behold, um, the Democratic puppets got in line. Fortunately, uh, in a commendable act of decency, Uh, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein broke ranks but I think it's a very telling episode Uh, final uh, characteristic that I'll mention here uh, I would summarize as shameless mendacity on the part uh, particularly of someone who's in a uh, position where he he really has to do better though I think he may be incapable of it That's, that's Chairman Pat Leahy I don't have time to document that here I've done so on my blog I'll do so again But uh, you cannot cannot trust what this man says. On Southwick, uh, Senator Spector corrected him time after time after time, his just blatant misrepresentations of cases. To the very end, Senator Leahy kept repeating them. Uh, So um, I think I'll leave leave it right there, Um, give us some some extra time. Uh, uh, And and, uh, thank you very much.
5: You've got uh, a few minutes to reply to that, what sounds like an indictment. If if you want to stand up here and use the microphone, feel free to.
6: I'm closer to it, so maybe I will. I don't know. I didn't think of it as an indictment, I just thought of it as mostly wrong. But, but, uh, my apologies. But, uh, you know, I think all of us are in agreement probably that the courts, the federal court system, is important to each of us in many aspects of our lives. Uh, The courts have a role in determining whether the air we breathe is clean, whether the water we drink is pure, whether we can be discriminated against in the workplace, uh, whether our vote will count when we go to cast our ballot, whether women will have the same opportunities as men. Um, The real... Tragedy of the last seven years is that President Bush has used um, his authority to nominate judges to further polarize the judiciary, and indeed to polarize the judicial nomination process itself. As we move now, now we're in an election year obviously, as, as Senator Specter alluded to, um, the stakes are extremely high, both for many of you here who are in the federalist society and want to see the courts move in one direction, and those, those of us from the progressive movement who hope to see the courts move in the right direction. Again, you know, um, no offense intended. Um, Part of what has happened, I think, is that we have nominees like uh, Leslie Southwick, who was confirmed to the Fifth Circuit uh, just a few months ago, who, uh, just to give an example of why he was opposed by many progressive organizations, he was unable to give a single example of a case he had decided in which he sided against a corporation and in favor of an ordinary person. He was unable to give an example of it in all his hundreds of cases in Mississippi. Now, maybe that's just the way those cases uh, should have been decided. But the American people have a right to weigh in on judicial nominations and the course of the judiciary. They have a right to expect that judges will respect precedent will act to advance their individual rights instead of curtail them, and so on. I can keep going, uh, but I won't. Now, obviously, people on on the opposing side can say, well, we have a right to curtail individual rights through the court system. Um, I I was going to talk a little bit about numbers and statistics. The problem with statistics is that they can always be, this is what, I don't know what the saying is about statistics, but they can always be used in different ways by different people to make the same to make very different points. So, for example, uh, the vacancy rate right now among Court of Appeals judges is among the lowest it's ever been. There are 14, I think, uh, vacancies in the federal courts of appeals. Uh, President Bush has, nom- has nominations for 10 of those positions pending. Of those 10, at least six were made without consultation with home state senators. Now, um, it's true that that the the, um, U.S. Code does not assign circuit judgeships to particular states. Nevertheless, there's an extremely long tradition that's been respected by the Senate for many years that that the seats of a given circuit should be allocated uh, among judges from the states that comprise that circuit. And so, for example... As, and I think Senator Spector touched on this as well. President Bush ignored the bipartisan advice of Senators Warner and Webb from Virginia in naming some, someone to the Fourth Circuit, despite a, a very lengthy process that those two senators had undertaken to come up with a list of, of uh, actually very conservative jurists, people on the Virginia Supreme Court, for example, who they believed uh, would, uh, would be confirmed. He chose someone not on that list. Uh, in fact, uh, there are a lot of news reports that Senator Specter himself uh, wanted to nominate, wanted someone nominated to the Third Circuit, a woman named Carolyn Short, uh, but the Bush administration would not nominate her because her husband is a Democrat. Um, so, so the. The role of this president has sought to curtail the role of the Senate in the nominations process. It's no surprise then that the Senate responds in various ways. Most of them, I think, not as effective as they could be, but has responded by trying to assert some sort of uh, authority. Um, And this is, of course, part of a bigger pattern that I'm sure you're all aware of, of President Bush's Uh, attempt to expand executive power at the expense of the powers of the other branches of government. Um, So I I just want to mention uh, a couple of other things. It's remarkable that we can uh, listen to Senator Spector talk about Roberts and Alito as being two of the great successes when I think one of the things that came out of their hearings was that they misled the American people and Congress. They told them that they would respect precedent, yet in, within their first year, they overturned numerous precedents, including statutory interpretation that has nothing to do with constitutional interpretation. For example, in the in the paycheck case involving Lily Ledbetter, um, ignored precedent immediately and, uh, in in a sense, frivolously. And to the detriment of ordinary Americans, um, I'll add that I think it's extremely important for the nomination process to work in the future. That the Senate and the American people should know what judicial nominees believe about the law. They need to know what does this person support equality for Americans. Does this person support rights that have been recognized for 30 or 50 or 100 years. Refusal to answer those sorts of questions cannot continue. If it does, what happens is the president knows the answer to those questions, but none of us do. And that's bad whether you're a conservative or a liberal. We need to be able to understand what the views are of judicial nominees before they announce those views to the detriment of millions of Americans uh, once they're on the bench. Thank you.
2: I know I can be heard, but I think there are corners in the room that can't see. So i um, uh, go ahead and stand up. Um, they did tell me they'd like me to talk about um, what it's like to be a, uh, to go through the confirmation process, but I'm not sure I'm the best witness. Asking a failed judicial nominee why he didn't get confirmed is like asking a patient why the operation failed. We know. We know much less about it than anybody else involved. Senator Spector probably could have told you why if there really wasn't any film in that camera, but I guess we'll all have to wait to know. What I can tell tell you is what it felt like under the knife, and I can give you an idea of how future patients might be made a little more comfortable um, than the process we're going through right now. I've been through confirmation three times. I was... um, I was nominated I went through two confirmation hearings to go to the Legal Services Board back in the um, uh, back in the Reagan administration, and I was confirmed. So I've seen it from both sides. So maybe my opinion may count a little bit. Um, and my opinion is that the confirmation process ought to be tough. I agree with Mr. Heller to that extent. Um, it is a, it is an important job. The Senate does have a duty to cut open the nominees and find out what they're like before you put them on the bench. These are lifetime jobs. You shouldn't be surprised. Uh, they ought to go through very difficult scrutiny. There has been a suggestion that, the, difficult, that the, the horrors of the confirmation process discourage people from accepting judgeships. I don't know whether or not that's true, But if people are discouraged, then I don't feel too badly about it. Agreeing to serve as a judge is service to your country. You either want to serve your country or you don't. And there are millions of people who have served their country and seen things a lot scarier than getting cross-examined by Ted Kennedy. If you can't put up with that, I'm not sure that I want you on the bench. Now, it's true that the process inflicts a lot of unnecessary pain. And and continuing the metaphor, when you go in for an operation these days, you get informed consent like mad. I've never met a judicial nominee who felt like he's been fully informed of what's going on. These are people who make it and people who don't make it. So much of this is out of your hands, and you don't know what is being done to you. But it's important. It's an important process, and I agree the Senate ought to dig deep into the nominees. I do have a few thoughts on how the process ought to change. Um, I certainly don't have any advice to the ABA when Senator, uh, when Senator Spector was leading me through my testimony a year or so ago. He uh, uh, he wanted me to say bad things about the ABA. The best I can tell you is I don't belong to the ABA. I never have. What they do is none of my business. But I certainly didn't disagree with anything Senator Spector had to say about them. <laughs> I don't have any advice for the Democrats. Uh, I'm not a Democrat. I may have a First Amendment right to say what I think, but I don't expect Chairman Leahy to pay any attention to me. But I do have some advice for my fellow Republicans. Um, The day will dawn when there is another Democrat in the White House, and Republicans will have to know how to deal with it. I hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. (laughs) But it's going to happen, and we ought to be ready for it. And the first thing I would say to Republican senators is meet the nominee and meet him early. The thing that frustrated me the most is that Democrats on the committee, and with one exception off the committee, absolutely refused to meet with me. I'm being nominated for a major position. Uh, they ought to be in a position to have an opinion on it absolutely flat out will not meet with me. It wasn't directed to me. Their position is we don't meet with anybody before the hearings. By that time, I think it's too late to do you any good. I give Senator Biden credit. He let his counsel meet with me, which was very kind. And the one Democratic senator who met with me was Senator Obama, which I appreciated very much. I guess he hadn't been here long enough to learn the rules. Um, But I think you ought to meet with people. It is just flat-out wrong to attack people you won't even talk to. And it's um, it has been a universal process over the last seven years, and it's wrong, and it ought to to stop. But for the good of the Republicans, you need to do it for self-defense, because failing to meet with the nominee can impair your judgment. You don't know what it is you're being dragged into. Wesley Southwick has been discussed here today. And I think Senator Feinstein did her party a tremendous favor by agreeing to meet with, with Judge Southwick. Because she met, once she met with Judge Southwick, she understood that no rational human being could have any objection whatsoever to Judge Southwick's confirmation. She understood it was a fight that could not and should not be won. Now, she didn't know at the time that we were going to have a Senate election in Mississippi this year. I promise you, the Democrats running for Senator Lott's seat do not want to spend this year, would not have wanted to spend this year, explaining why Leslie Southwick couldn't get confirmed by a Democratic Senate. I think the story is enough in the past now that they may not have to argue with that. But if Leslie was still hanging around because the Democrats wouldn't even talk to him, uh, the Democratic nominees in Mississippi would have no hope whatsoever. The other thing about delay is that it makes you too dependent on the outside groups. They get the fights started. They pick the fights, and you don't get to pick them. And they're well down the road before you even know what the fight's about, um, and that's one of the things that I find most regrettable about the present situation. When I, when I went home from, um, when I flew home from my confirmation hearings, I was sitting on the row behind Ralph Neese. And I said, Ralph, I feel really bad. I must have put your staff through a huge amount of work to gin up that 38 page report about what was wrong with me. I'm sorry I caused him such a burden. Now, Ralph could have just shown up for the testimony himself and say, I've known Wallace for twenty five years, he's against the Section five of the Voting Rights Act, vote no. That's all he'd need to say. But there is a huge organization now. You've got you raise your money, you hire your staff, you issue your press releases, you have to put them to work. And if you don't gin up a thirty eight page report on people, people think you're not doing your job. By the time the Senators actually focus on the nominee The battle has been joined, and there's nothing left for you to do but make up, pick, choose up sides. So I say to our Republicans, meet the nominees, meet them early, pick your own fights. Don't let somebody else pick them for you. The other item is to be honest about your reasons. If you disagree with the nominee, say so. As Mr. Heller has said, there's a lot of important constitutional issues out there. If you think the nominee is on the wrong side of the constitutional issue, stand up and say so. Senators take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. If you think the nominee is a danger to the Constitution, say so and say why. But for God's sake, don't pretend that people are unqualified to be judges. It's not that complicated a job. It's important, but it's not rocket science. Lots of people can do it. We had, you know, we had three qualified nominees in Mississippi before we got one confirmed. And if Senator Feinstein hadn't gotten Wesley Southwick confirmed, we could have found more. There's a lot of qualified people out there. Don't pretend people, um, but that that people aren't qualified when they are. One other thing, the Constitution's serious business. If you want to win a war of ideas. You need to discuss ideas. You don't need to tell lies about people. That is going to win short-term points. It is not, in the long term, going to persuade people of your view of the Constitution. If there's something wrong with the nominee, give him credit for good faith, but say why he's wrong. And in the long term, you may be able to persuade the electorate to agree with you, And not with the president. You just can't convert voters by spreading lies. In the long term, it doesn't work. And the final point is don't cry wolf. You do swear to defend the Constitution, but you have to be very careful the fights you pick and where you stand to defend it. There may come a time when it really is necessary to filibuster a nominee to the bench. It's not likely to be at the Court of Appeals level. Uh, No matter what they tell you, the courts aren't that important. But the Supreme Court is that important. And there may come a time when either side needs to filibuster a nominee. To that extent, the question about the Gang of 14, they're right. The Gang of 14 got it right. There may be exceptional circumstances. You can argue about when they are, but if you care about the Constitution, you have to concede they exist. But when you're ready to filibuster somebody, when it really counts... Nobody is going to believe you. It really counts if you spent the last seven years filibustering Priscilla Owen and Bill Pryor. When you cry wolf too many times and you really need it, nobody is going to believe it. So those are my advice. Those are my uh, thoughts based on my experience and my advice to my friends on the Republican side and. Um, you know, I said, I said Chairman Leahy wouldn't pay any attention. The Republicans probably won't either. But for what it's worth, those are my thoughts. Thank you.
7: I have a short version and I have a long version. Uh, the short version is I agree with everything Mr. Wallace said. Um, So I could sit down, or I could bore you a little bit with the longer version of this, uh, which I think is uh, just an elaboration to some extent of some of the themes that he sounded. Um, But let me go back to a good starting point um, from the way I look at things. Uh, There have been different analogies put forward. Certainly the Arab-Palestinian conflict is a good analogy. I think of a different analogy because I come from academia. I think of faculty meetings. (laughs) And it has been said, and I can tell you it's true, um, that the reason faculty fights are so vicious is because the stakes are so small. (laughs) And I think there is, within the confirmation process, some of the same dynamic. Uh, Some of these differences, some of the issues get magnified along the lines I think Mr. Wallace was talking about. But magnified way beyond any reasonable proportions, and that, of course, helps. Uh, to explain some of the distortions and some of the problems we've seen. What I want to do, if it's all right, is talk about what I think are some different causes of the conflict and how they might be resolved. I'm not going to be casting any blame, at least consciously uh, or expressly. Um, I, I don't, that's not what I see my purpose here to be, and it's certainly not what I'm going to try to do. Um, so a good place for me then to start in trying to sort of identify maybe why do we see the process look the way it does today? Or um, One reason has already been touched on by Mr. Wallace, and that's interest groups. I don't think there's any question at all that interest groups to some extent feel that in order to justify what they do, in order to justify the fundraising that they do, they've got to pick fights. They've got to go out and sort of put together inf- records and Pamphlets and so on, and I think this cuts across ideological lines. With well, all due respect, to I, mean, if you don't, I mean, you know, I, I just think it's. I mean, I, I, I'm not questioning people's good faith when they enter into these debates and dialogues. But if you want to know why so much paper gets produced and why, in a sense, um, and sometimes you, you hear so much sort of sound and fury over particular nominations, that may help explain part of it. Now, of course, I just said sound and fury, which may well signify nothing. Because the question then becomes, to what extent do the senators hear it? To what extent are they influenced by it? Senators, at least uh, off the record, say that they aren't much influenced by it. And so I don't know whether that's true or not. But one thing it might uh, at least sensitize us to is the need to find out what are the pressure points that get senators particularly interested in nominees and to take positions. What are those pressure points? And that leads me to the second Point, which again echoes, I think, what Mr. Wallace said, and that, and again, it cuts across the board. There is there is a vast need for much greater candor and much greater transparency in the confirmation process, and this, I think, is true for both sides. I think that everyone, or at least I shouldn't say everyone, but I think oftentimes what you see is a lot of dialogue, a lot of positions taken as proxies or perhaps substitutes for other things. People will go after something because they don't want to necessarily have to contend more directly with something else. And I think the process could benefit enormously, not just if people met each other, but if people were much more honest about where they were coming from, what their positions were, and why they were doing what they were doing. That that degree of honesty, I think, is hard to find sometimes. Um, I recall that when I was uh, doing some NPR coverage of the... Uh, The Roberts hearings, one one comment I made about Chief Justice Roberts um, was, and I I still think this is true, um, is that as long as you had a Republican president and as long as you had a Republican president was prepared to nominate a conservative Chief Justice, you were never, ever going to find anybody better qualified than John Roberts. So the question just becomes whether or not you would ever want to vote for such a nominee. That could be the only question. You couldn't possibly make the case that he's unqualified or there's any other reason other than just his outlook and maybe his background that would lead you to vote against him. But that's the kind of candor I'm talking about, is that people would have to be much more direct about saying this is the problem and this is why I take that position. And one reason why I uh, promote and try and argue for candor is because it's connected to something else that's important to me, and that's accountability. Ultimately, the process, I think, if it's going to work better or differently, depends on the extent to which people are actually held accountable. Um accountable for what they do or accountable for what they don't do. A third difficulty here, uh, now moving closer to the ground level, is what I call the problem of unilateral disarmament. This is, picks up on the image that uh, David used to begin with. That's part of the problem with the Arab-Israeli conflict, is you know, who wants to be the first to put the guns down and the weapons down. This is part of the difficulty in the Senate, is who's going to be the first? Which party or party's leaders are going to be the first to put those parliamentary maneuvers mechanisms down? and then sort of compromise, go along to get along, which is going to be the first to do it? And, of course, the answer is neither, because each is afraid the other will then shoot it or take advantage of that party when it's its turn, uh, when that wheel turns. So that's, again, part of the difficulties. How do you solve that problem of unilateral disarmament? Who's going to be first, uh, in a sense, to sort of take that risk? And then let's see if, in fact, there could be, and here's a fourth thing, some middle ground. Is there any room for compromise in this process? That's another issue or theme that we see throughout the years is that there seems to be such little ground sometimes, such little middle ground. Uh, and you can ask yourselves whether you think there's any possible middle ground. What would a compromise position be like? Would you be prepared to uh, simply accept, and here's a hypothetical, I don't mean to scare anybody here, a, a, chief, you know, a nominee like Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court,
3: um,
7: uh, or what other kind of nominees would you be prepared to accept? How do we understand merit? Is there some non-ideological way to define merit or judicial philosophy or judicial qualifications? Um, those are the kinds of things that sometimes tear the sides apart, complicate the, 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 the agreements, and explain the, the divisiveness. Another difficulty, as we all know, and Simon alluded to this, it's the subject of my new book, I should say, is um, precedent. Um, it's available nowhere, by the way. Uh, um, <laughs> um, but it's the, role, it's the role of precedent in constitutional law. To what, extent do, not only, to what extent does precedent matter? To what extent do people respect precedent? But here the critical thing to understand, I believe, is what does it mean to say one respects precedent? Uh, here I might just respectfully disagree with Simon. Roberts and Alito have not yet cast a vote to override a single constitutional precedent. They have cast votes in a sense to weaken some precedents, but when they do that, they do it invariably to strengthen others. So is that a reflection of a lack of respect for precedent or a respect for other precedents? What exactly is that a reflection of? Um, That's the complication with precedent, is that we know that a lot of people get invested in certain precedents, but what exactly... um, well, we've got to get a little more precise and a little clearer on what we mean when we talk about respect for precedent. I don't think Roberts and Lito, at least from my judgment, are doing anything different than what I expected them to do. I think they're following pretty much the path I would have expected them to follow. Uh, I have not – maybe it's just – I'm not sure what that means about me. But I, I think in any event, I, I don't see them doing anything contrary to what they said or purported to be or what we reasonably could have expected of them given their, their records. I will hasten through a few other possible uh, causes here. Um, one cause I think is, we can't underestimate is the point that made, was made by Senator Spector and has been echoed here as well today. The president, we have to acknowledge, has been slow in making nominations. That can't have helped the process. That can't have helped his nominees. And we know that that was an issue and theme beginning with the second term. And that slowness, especially with the midterm elections coming up, Um, can't have helped. That's a complication. So if you've got a a slowness or, in fact, a failure to make nominations by the president, um, that's a problem, of course, for the confirmation process. But here's another problem. It's the problem if the president doesn't listen to the senators. He has the constitutional authority not to listen. I, I certainly would defend that. But then it becomes a political problem if he fails to listen. And that may be the difficulty we see in part, is if President Bush is not going to listen to the senators, who are the ones that have to pay the price for the nominees he's, he puts up? After all, they have to vote on them. They've got to fight for them or defend them or not. So one would think it might be some political justification for at least listening to them, finding some middle ground uh, sometimes on nominations. But if the president doesn't listen, whose fault then is that? Um, like the last couple of uh, couple things we need to think about for the future. One is um, the rules of the Senate. Now here I must—I I feel like it's déjà vu because when I was last had the honor of coming before the Federal Society, and let me emphasize to you, I always consider this one of the greatest honors I can ever have, and I do appreciate it. I, I have enormous regard for this society and just and your intellectual integrity and your willingness to um, put up with me. Um, the last time I was here, I, had the, I was in the position of defending the constitutionality of the filibuster. And I took the position then, which is the position I take now, that the filibuster is constitutional for the same reasons that all these other procedures in the Senate are constitutional. So I would agree with Senator Specter that now that the Republicans find themselves in the minority, they are as entitled under the rules to do what they think they've got to do as the Democrats ever were when they were in the minority. The choice to take advantage of the rules is a political choice. That's not my business. My business is not giving political advice. But what I can say is that the Constitution allows the Republicans to take advantage of those rules to the fullest extent possible. And one can't claim a constitutional difficulty with that. Um, So as we watch things unfold, keep in mind that, of course, now the wheel has turned and Republicans can take advantage of the very same parliamentary mechanisms, should they choose, that Democrats had taken advantage of to obstruct their nominees. So this is, but this is part of the reason why, perhaps, this is the cost, if you will, of the Democrats' choice to take advantage of those parliamentary mechanisms. They made that choice, now in the sense they've got to live with it and and face perhaps the same mechanisms, in a sense, being used to frustrate some of their agenda. The, la- the I'm sorry. <laughs> the last thing I want to just raise is the fact that Um, maybe the problem here is that we care too much. Maybe the difficulty is that when it comes to judicial confirmations and the whole process, we end up investing almost too much of our souls, too much of our interests, too much of our hearts and minds into this process, thinking that there's so much at stake. That's, of course, what may help explain some battles, that people think the stakes are so huge. But so what I come to as an ending point is is perhaps picking up on one of the last points that Mr. Wallace made is, okay, do judges make that much difference? And what will be the harm in finding middle ground on judicial nominations? Um, We need to be honest about that. If there is a harm, we need to be open about it. And then, of course, then we need to face the consequences of taking that position. Thank
3: you.
5: First, um, does anybody on the panel uh, have an urge to respond to something that somebody else said? No? Okay, I'm going to ask one or two questions, and then we're going to open it up for questions, any of you that can stay. Um, This is a debate where both sides sort of say the other side is acting illegitimately. Uh, You know, the uh, Democrats seem to think that the Republican presidents are doing something wrong by picking people who are too conservative. They're not picking middle-of-the-road judges. And the Republicans tend to tend to suggest the Democratic senators are doing something illegitimate by not confirming them. They're taking ideology into account. So I want to ask a question sort of to both sides of this. Uh, Maybe I'll pick on Ed. Uh, Do you think it's is it uh, reasonable and fair for Democratic senators to say I'm going to consider the ideological views of a judicial nominee, and I may oppose that nominee, even if he or she is well qualified for the job. But nonetheless, if I think the person is too conservative, I'm going to oppose him or her. Is that a legitimate position to take, in your view? Well, let me try to answer that uh, briefly, but in a few ways. First of all, uh,
4: senators can vote up or down a nominee for whatever reason they want. I, I'm not sure that I would, uh, characterize any reason as illegitimate. Uh, second, uh, I think, uh, judicial ideology properly understood is uh, perfectly fair grounds, uh, for, for, uh, voting on a nominee. Uh, my complaint with Democratic senators would be that they don't have a proper understanding of what judicial ideology is, but I don't, uh, criticize folks uh, for acting on that basis, I would add, indeed, that I think it's Republican senators that you'll hear invoking principles of deference, uh, and the reason for that is Republican senators are generally looking for a reason to roll over and play dead <laughs> when a when a when a Democratic president is making the nomination, and that principle of deference uh, provides that. Uh, what I want, um, you know, above all, is a, an open, honest debate. On the role of the Constitution, the role of law, the role of judging, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't say that uh, and that you know any senator can't take anything into account into account. I do think when you watch the the uh, judiciary committee hearings, uh, with few exceptions, uh, on both sides, there aren't many senators who uh, demonstrate much of an ability to uh, assess judicial ideology.
5: Does anybody else want to say anything on that? Yes, Yeah. I-
6: does this work? Yeah. I, I would just say that, look, uh, whether it's President Clinton, President Bush, President Nixon, President Eisenhower, when presidents nominate judges, they surely take into account the ideology of the nominee. Otherwise, we would have had President Bush appointing a liberal graduate of Harvard Law School for every conservative uh, graduate of Harvard Law School that he, he named. That just doesn't happen. He's appointing or naming judges whose ideology he believes is consistent with his own. And sometimes he may be disappointed. Uh, Sometimes he may be thrilled with the result. Uh, Certainly, if the president uses ideology as a criterion, the American people have a right to know the ideology of the nominee and the senators have a right to know the ideology of the nominee, whether they discern it effectively through the hearing is a separate question. Um, But there should be no limitation on, uh, I think on as full an understanding of a judicial nominees, ideology and judicial philosophy as a Senator or as the public may, may want. And this is part of why in addition to, Answering questions at hearings, nominees need to make available whatever writings they've done uh, and and uh, and speeches they've given, if that's what the Senate uh, wants to explore. David,
4: if I may, I, I think Simon's uh, answer takes things one step one big step further than than I would go. I uh, agree with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, that the principle that ought to govern uh, nominees' uh, answers to senators' questions are no hints, no forecasts, no previews on issues that might come before the court. That you know, the, the question of, of how senators can get information and what information they get is distinct from the question of uh, the bases on which senators may properly act.
2: Can, can I say one thing? perfectly happy to have senators act on the basis of philosophy. I've always thought ideology is a philosophy you don't like. But uh, at the court of appeals level, and even less so at the district court level, it doesn't matter all that much. Court of appeals judges do not make a lot of philosophical law. They may interpret odd portions of federal statutes, but the big philosophical questions are settled over here on First Street. I mean, at the Court of Appeals, you've got, you've got drug cases, you've got immigration cases, you've got tons of stuff coming through your door. You don't sit around and plot to undermine the Constitution. You've got precedents, you apply them, and for the most part, that's your job. Maybe the D.C. Circuit's a little different. It's got a different sort of jurisdictional base. But for the most part, the Court of Appeals are a place where settled law gets applied to thousands of cases year after year after year.
5: Okay, so there's a general acceptance, I take it, that uh,
2: the other party,
5: the party that's other than the president can take um, ideology into account. Let me ask this one first to you. Simon, what's your view if um, a Democrat gets elected, takes office next January, Supreme Court vacancy comes open, and he or she immediately chooses a very, like your example, a well-qualified Harvard liberal for the Supreme Court. <laughs> and all the Republican senators said, "Well, you know, this person is obviously a liberal, uh, maybe well-qualified, but I'm going to uh, oppose the um, his or her confirmation on that basis alone." Is that? I don't know. Is that uh, legitimate in your view, or is that uh, overstepping the bounds of the uh, uh, the proper role of the Senate?
6: Well, no. I, I think I think that a senator, each senator, needs to make his or her own determination for a variety of reasons uh, about how he or she will vote on a particular nominee, and that can include ideology. Um, uh, I think that uh, that uh, let me give one example. I think that, that there, there are processes, and maybe this relates to part of what Professor Gerhardt was talking about. Um, there are process, very simple things a president can do to make ideology perhaps a little bit less of a factor. And one of those is, for example, as far as I'm aware, President Clinton consulted with Orrin Hatch about every significant judicial nomination he made. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that President Bush has obviously not done that. doing that and some of the steps that that uh, Mr. Wallace was talking about, uh, meeting the nominees and understanding their or hearing from them directly about their ideology and their approach to uh, to judging can moderate that uh, One's initial reaction to vote against someone because of ideology Um, so uh, I think it's it may well be that many Republicans would oppose uh, the appointment of a Supreme Court Justice who is um, who they perceive as uh, not likely to move the law in the direction they want it to go David
4: may I pipe in on that please? Sure uh, I just want to make clear that uh, I will oppose uh, a judicial filibuster by uh, Republicans uh, in the event of a Democratic president. I'll do so um, uh, not because of any view about the uh, constitutionality of the filibuster. I think Professor Gerhardt and I are on exactly the same page that the filibuster is as constitutional as the committee structure uh, in the Senate. Uh, I will do so uh, because of the value of accountability that he referred to, and uh You know, if if the situation that uh, David posited happens, I think it's incumbent upon Republicans to make a vigorous case on the merits against the nominee, if that's what's warranted, to vote and to lose. That's what uh, we did, I'll say, when I was working for Senator Hatch during the first uh, two-plus years of the Clinton administration. Uh, We had open battles we spelled out, you know, 60-page memos entered in the congressional record, memos that no one ever found any fault in. <laughs> uh, the defects say the records of Rosemary Barquette and Lee Sarakin. Uh We did not dream of filibustering. Uh, we exposed what was going on. We lost those battles. I think we helped helped win some wars there. Um, on the particular question of consultation with Senator Hatch, this is raised a lot, and since I was involved uh, I'd like to clarify a bit. The key thing to understand is that Senator Hatch and President Clinton had a common interest, mistaken or otherwise, in avoiding a fight. Senator Hatch never drew an ideological line. In fact, I remember almost jumping out of my chair when I heard him on, uh, I was with him at NBC studio on the Saturday morning. He proposed Marion Wright Edelman as a perfectly acceptable Supreme Court nominee. (laughs) What he was doing for President Clinton is he was helping him figure out which nominees would really create problems, not on ideological basis, but really on personal basis. Bruce Babbitt, because there are lots of senators out west who just didn't like him and would have to oppose him. There is no one on on, on the Democratic side, certainly not Senator Leahy, no one else on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who is ready to play that sort of role uh, with President Bush. So the the, the situations simply are not comparable. It's
5: quite interesting. Let's, Let's go to questions. Ron?
8: Yeah, David, uh, you drew up uh, a contrast in the beginning. That is, I think it was about whether you, uh, whether we should vote for or against the ideology. But I think the real question is one really Ed ended up with is, are we going to allow the senators to wo- vote? You take Judge Southwick. People might say he's good. I guess most people might say most people said that. Some people might say he's bad. It's one thing to say the senators can be, debate that and vote, but not to let that vote. Come to the floor. It only came to the floor because of the fortuity of the, of the California. It was Senator Feinstein, I think it is, right. because she was allowed it to go to the floor. Once it went to the floor, a majority of the senators, including many Democrats, voted for Southwick. Now Simon says that that was Southwick was wrong. Oh, well, maybe you know, that maybe he's right about that in some ultimate sense. But we have a democracy, and the world's greatest deliberative body, we're told, should deliberate but never vote. They should always deliberate before they vote, but to oppose voting, even after full deliberation, is something I think is wrong for either party to do, and to say now that the Republicans will be able to do it in a year if, if the Democrats win in control of the, of the White House seems to, to say that you did bad, we can do bad. What ultimately suffers is, I think, both the courts and this concept of democracy, where after you have all these checks, there is eventually a vote.
5: My sense is that over the years, the uh, Republicans and Democrats have had different approaches to this. The, uh, the Democrats and the liberals, when there's a controversial nominee, it seems to be, let's put this person up for public ridicule and, and beat him up a bit and, uh, and embarrass him and, and uh, deride him and finally vote him down. The Republicans used to have a sort of what I'd call more like of a disappearance strategy. Clinton would pick somebody and nothing months would go by no hearings no nothing. So actually I don't know whether any of you had occasion to follow this there actually was I think a legitimate complaint in the in the second half of the Clinton administration that Clinton's people would pick various people and they would get no hearing no nothing they would just disappear. Now I suppose if if I had to choose I'd rather disappear than get pilloried in public. But nonetheless both parties have sort of played a a little bit of a different game with uh, the appeals courts over the years. Yeah, I mean,
8: first then defamation. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it
3: takes into account, though,
9: that the Republicans control the Senate. The Republicans control the Senate in, in Clinton's second term. True. And now that the Democrats um, control the Senate, that is what's happening to Bush's nominees. They're just disappearing. They're not being attacked. The attack method is what you do in, when you're in the minority. And I don't think there's any precedent for um, – the level of attack and the level of obstruction that occurred in, in Bush's first six years.
4: Dave, I agree with what Kurt just said, but I also think that um, what you said is an insight into what I see as a big difference, not one that cuts in their favor in any moral sense at all, uh, but a difference between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans haven't been willing uh, as much as they should to get out there and fight the battles openly. We did that during the first two years of the Clinton administration because we had no choice. But then they resorted to this obscure strategy of secret holds and not moving folks. Look, you know, if we believe in our arguments, let's make them. Let's, let's expose what's wrong with candidates. Let's you know, go on the record and vote. But what happens is Republicans think that the safest path to reelection lies in these quiet little methods where they never have to you know, actually take a vote. They're not accountable. No one back home is going to get upset with them. Democrats, by contrast, are driven by their mobilized base to be very, very aggressive. And I think what you see is a real difference in the incentives that the senators face um, at the party base level. And it will be interesting if we, you know, if and when we have a Democratic president, which I hope is, is until Mike Wallace's great-grandkids' lifetime, uh, is how much the Internet changes this. Is the obscurity mm-hmm. that Republicans relied on, the fact that no one's really going to go through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's record to find the documents that I – found and sat on. Um, so no one, you know, uh, no, no one will know about that. You know, isn't going to be possible um, uh, next time around.
3: Michael, did you want
7: to? Yeah, just a, a brief comment. I mean, um, this is both a separate problem, but it's also related to what we're talking about. And, and that is, of course, the nature of the United States Senate. I mean, partly what what we're trying to wrestle with here is it's one thing to give the senators political advice. It's another thing to ask them to step outside their institution and ignore their traditions, rules, and the way that they operate. Partly what we're dealing with here, or partly what we're confronting, is whether or not nominations should be treated or may be treated the same as legislation, which, as we all know, sometimes disappears, which we know sometimes gets filibustered. Um, and that's not the only thing that gets defeated in committees um, without hearing sometimes and, and other activities. So, Partly what we've got to do is, I mean, it's, it's, I understand the, the why there is a, a need to give political advice, but it's not as if the United States Senate is like any other institution. And so that's what happens. So we've got to be mindful that once that advice enters that atmosphere, it's a different place with different rules. And, and then you have, to, you have to then think, okay, will the senators be prepared to ignore their rules Uh, committee rules as well as the the Senate rules um, in doing business, whether it's on nominations or anything else. What we've seen, and this is what's so frustrating, I guess, for people, is they don't ignore those rules on nominations. Um, And, in fact, they think uh, whatever the rules may be are as applicable to them as any other Senate business. And that's sort of what we're almost sort of confronting here. Is it the same? Is it different than other business? That's one, one question that needs to be answered.
10: you wondered, or you, you asserted that if a, uh, if there is contrary to Mr. Um, uh, everyone's wishes, uh, there is a Democratic um, uh, president this fall, and he or she appoints a liberal Democrat nominee. You think that many Republicans will vote against that person on the basis of ideology, um, but the. Two pieces of evidence we have so far, as Ed Whelan mentioned earlier, is that in fact they won't because uh, I, I forget what the exact figures were, but there was overwhelming uh, Republican support in the Senate for Ginsburg and Breyer, whose records were not uh, a secret. And I'd just like to to know on what basis you're saying that. And I, In fact, I think that really shows that in many instances whether or not you think that was the right move to make as Republican senators. The Republicans were being intellectually honest, um, whereas many of the Democrats, frankly, who voted against Alito and, and, and Roberts were not. And I, and I think part of that has shown that the Democrats and other liberals who did support Roberts and Alito, who signed uh, letters on their behalf, people who self-consciously identified uh, as, as liberals and Democrats, some of whom had clerked for them, others who knew them professionally, said that these people were fantastic nominees. And I thought it was really um, uh, interesting that the Democrats viewed their allegiance to their base as more important to them than uh, the advice of people whom, in many cases, they knew through their professional circles. Uh, And and in fact, I think in in that vein, if, for example, Elena Kagan were nominated, I think there are many people uh, who are conservatives and who are graduates of Harvard Law School, given her uh, the atmosphere that she's brought to the law school, would in fact support her.
6: Well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that the, the the Republicans who voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg were doing so out of intellectual honesty. Uh, they may well have been doing so, and I'm just speculating as I think you are,
10: because they knew she would be confirmed. And
6: why fight? Why? And this I think is is similar to what what Ed was saying that that uh, in fact it's a much harder vote in many ways for the, the, I think for Democrats to have voted against Alito or against Roberts, which. Uh, didn't stop the confirmation but can be used to attack them. Uh, that, as you're pointing out, by having voted for Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer, what do you say to politically? That's, that's not a disadvantage uh, if they were going to be confirmed anyway. Uh, and I think it is a disadvantage actually to Democrats who voted or may be a disadvantage to those who voted against Alito and Roberts because then their opposition to those people is clear, even though they were confirmed. So I'm not sure intellectual honesty has anything to do with how those people voted, uh, Republican or Democrat. It may have in some individual cases, and I would imagine that just as there were Democrats who voted to confirm Chief Justice Roberts and Alito, Alito, there will be some Republicans who would uh, vote to confirm uh, someone who is viewed as a as a liberal nominee
5: it It does seem though that that vote has lowered the bar quite a bit for Republican senators to say this person is qualified, but he's he or she's too liberal in my view because Sam Melito and John Roberts were certainly qualified, had a lot of experience on it, and were not seen as I didn't think it's extremist, but they were – it could be if I was a Democratic senator, I'd say he seems pretty conservative. And so it does seem like it sort of lowered the bar for a lot of Republicans now to vote against Democratic nominees
7: should there ever be another Democratic. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, of course, is – that's, of course, what makes it like a faculty meeting, um, <laughs> the fact that it's got to be tit for tat, you know. So, you know, the question is, you know, do we – you know, should there be payback, you know, for those negative votes? Um, And at some point, uh, you know, you'd hope the people could be bigger than that.
4: And I'm saying there shouldn't be tit for tat. Again, I I think Republicans should not filibuster any judicial nominees by a Democratic president.
5: But you do think they should stand up and vote against somebody who's really liberal, don't you?
4: Yes, and they'll end up losing. That's not, I mean, that's, that's, I, I think, a responsible course of action. Make the case. What if there's
5: a Republican majority? Well, if
4: there was a Republican majority, which seems unlikely imminently, but uh, if they if they went on that great uh, you know i I think uh, you know that's I think that's the way the game ought to work with accountability Yes,
1: it doesn't seem that there's really any agreement as to what the system actually is, but that leads to the question: is there any agreement that the current system actually usually if not invariably, produces well-qualified judges? And or, B, does the system generally produce the best qualified people that we could get?
2: I've already said it's not rocket science. There are a lot of people who can do this job. I think the people who get through the system are perfectly qualified to do the job. I'm not sure who the best qualified people are. Um, You know, I wouldn't be terribly well qualified to be a district judge. I try cases, but don't do them every day of my life. I do argue cases up at the Court of Appeals all the time. You know, I'm qualified to do that. But if you put me on the district bench, I'd get an evidence book and I'd learn how to do it. I mean, it's not that hard. So best qualified is more of a... The, the idea that there's an SAT for judges just isn't right. You know, there, there's different, quali- there, it's a political position, it's part of how we govern ourselves, and in different places you need different people for different reasons.
7: I, and maybe if I could just add to that, I mean, certainly historically I, I think it would be not fair to sort of look at, to evaluate the process in terms of whether it produces the best qualified, because, of course, the answer to that would be no. Um, there have been some very well-qualified people, but I, sp- but I, and I am j- just guessing you could probably go through most historical periods, find people that I think would be really terrific nominees, or let's say Henry Friendly, mm-hmm. who never made it to the Supreme Court. So, And I'd venture to say that a lot of those folks sitting on the court in the 19th century around about the time of Dred Scott were not the best qualified people. <laughs> In the United States. But this is just another way of saying the process, is, and I've heard Justice Breyer say this, the process is ultimately political. And so we don't expect a political process to produce as an outcome the best qualified
2: it's what, what Harry Blackman said. Harry Blackman said, becoming a federal judge is like being in the right spot when the bus comes along. I mean, it's, it's just about that haphazard. But to go back to the Israeli-Palestinian question, these days there's usually a bomb on the bus.
3: <laughs>
2: well, well I, I agree with what uh,
4: Professor Gerhard and, and, and Mr. Wallace have said. I just add a, a couple comments on this. One, I believe that the... Uh, senatorial influence, which is really just a matter of Senate perks to, you know, patronage opportunities, uh, that, that has grown way too large. This is a, a, another one of my bipartisan comments, applies equally <laughs> to both sides. You know, when you see um, you know, a real estate transactional lawyer in California by the name of Mylon Smith getting nominated to the Ninth Circuit, well, I have nothing against Mylon Smith. Perhaps he's a perfectly fine attorney, but he's also the, 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 the brother of Gordon Smith. Uh, you know that's not an accident, um, and there are plenty of other instances, especially with district court nominees, mm-hmm. where it's going to be your fundraiser's uh, wife or your you know uh, uh, a cousin. I'm sure this has happened through history. This is politics. I'm not suggesting otherwise. I, uh, the blue slip policy has expanded in recent decades. This this notion that that appellate seats in your state. Um, should be subject to um, your your blue slip is something relatively new. I think that's bad. I'll also say um, uh, Mike said at the beginning that you know if you don't have a th- a thick skin, um, you, sh- um, you know, so what? No sympathies. Well, Mike has very thick skin to go through what he's gone to have the the, the sense of humor that he still does. I think um, there are lots and lots of people who are not going to be ready to have their young kids see them portrayed on TV as villains, to have, I was talking with a, a, a failed nominee the other day, we talked about people going through his trash, um, you know, look, looking for mail and stuff. There are people who just are not going to want to do this. So I, I, think that, I think that the process has gotten very ugly, and I think it deters some otherwise more qualified people from uh, uh, putting their names forth as candidates.
6: Yeah, I I just want to say that, first of all, I mean, having seen many, many judges myself write opinions, there's a range of, let's say, abilities in terms of writing. Just whether you're conservative or or liberal, some people write better, they reason better than others. Um, So part of the question is, what do we mean by qualification to be a judge? Do we mean a law degree from a well-known university in years of practice? Do we mean the ability to write and reason well? Uh, my own view is that qualification also includes something about one's approach to, uh, to uh, how the law is interpreted. And I think that's the view probably of the federal society as well, that part of someone's qualifications are Is or one should take into account what that person's, that nominee's views are about how the law should evolve or not evolve, as the case may be. So I think part of the question depends on, what, or the answer to the question depends on how you define a person's qualifications. All the people who have been, for example, all of the people who have been confirmed are probably admitted to practice law somewhere. That's a pretty low bar. All of them have probably had a few years of some sort of practice or teaching. Yeah, I mean, those sorts of credential qualifications are probably present for every nominee, both confirmed and not. Although I will say that occasionally, of course, there have been nominees who have real... Problems in their records that are whether of a uh, professional ethics nature or otherwise that probably disqualify them, but but uh, it really depends on what you mean by qualified uh, qualified to be a judge. Any
5: other questions around here? Yes.
0: I was curious on the advice and consent clause. Um, I, I'm not suggesting this is a constitutional requirement at all because it's clearly a, a somewhat vague term, but. Do, do you think the advice and consent clause implies that the Senate do, uh, actually, actually do, do a direct vote? An up and down vote? In other words, as opposed to, you know, you're talking about burying, burying things legislatively, which the Senate certainly has, as you, Professor Garrett correctly points out, has done all the time. Does the advice and consent clause apply anything uh, different? Imply now anything that I'm
2: not different? running for judge, I can give you a constitutional opinion. No, I don't think it applies any such um, thing. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the Senate does advise and consent, but I don't think there's anything in the Constitution that says you've got this power and you must vote. I, I don't see how you get there.
0: Let me just make clear my, my question. I didn't mean it was constitu- it would be constitutionally enforceable. Yeah. I meant is it sort of – would it be reasonable to say, gee – Advice and consent really means we need to act on the nomination, even though we, we reject it, or does it not mean anything at all in that regard. Just advice and consent is We thought about it, and we thought the best thing to do was just let it lie there. I
2: think it's yeah, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, Mr. President, our advice is you take this nominee and go away and don't bother us with him anymore, and that's you know something. I, I will say this: it's nice to be able to talk about the Constitution again um, when um, when. When you go before the Senate Judiciary Committee, at least when the Republicans are in charge, you have to fill out and answer a question about your judicial philosophy. And you make it as, you know, as honest and as non-troublesome as you possibly can. <laughs> and, I, you know, I mentioned something about Marbury versus Madison, and I swear they made me take it out. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you're going to talk about Roe v. Wade if you can't talk about Marbury. <laughs>
7: Um, maybe just to follow up on that, I, I, um, I, I've i been on record on that for some time in the 1990s when it wasn't popular for a Democrat to do this. I I basically took the position that the advice and consent power actually did not require or compel any kind of floor vote. And I think it's because it's like every other power uh, that Congress has got. Um, it It is um, a power that then uh, that body's got, but the body also has the power to make delegations to committees, as you know. So whether it's a treaty or bill or anything else, the way these the House and Senate are structured is they will then delegate that business to a committee. The committee's under no compulsion to bring it out. The fair to bring it out could well be just the decision that essentially that was our advice and consent. You know, we we decided to sit on it. You know, that's that was what we concluded. Um, I, I, one of the complications, of course, with the advice and consent power is. That, you know how much time does it require? And uh, you couldn't argue at least based on the text that it compels or requires a particularly quick action. So then you could imagine just inferring from that that well they could take as much time as they wanted to give their advice and consent, literally years. So that may help at least explain constitutionally why things can die in committee. I'm just talking about why the Constitution Why that would be consistent with the Constitution. Now, there's a whole other political problem with that. But I don't, at least I've long thought you can't argue from the structure or the text of the Constitution that the Senate's got some institutional obligation to to have a final vote on every nominee.
6: Can I just add that it's it's really no different than the, I think, and I agree with with Professor Gerhardt, that it's no different than any other uh, constitutional provision that prescribes something Congress is supposed to do. One House passes a bill, it sends it to the other House. Does the other House have an obligation to vote on it? Well, I mean, you could try to cobble together an argument that, well, the other House sent it. The other, the other, the second House should vote on it. But that's just not true. And of course it's not true with legislation. And there's no reason, I think, even in constitutional structure, uh, people who interpret the Constitution according to its structure, to ascribe any need uh, to, for for votes, uh, up or down votes on on judicial nominees. Is
5: there any other... Questions otherwise would occur?
6: Um,
9: I came in late, so excuse me if this has been discussed, but how would you, Simon, and, and the rest of you um, feel about what the president proposed, God, it must have been four or five years ago now, which is basically a timetable. Not that it's constitutionally required, but you will hold a hearing within six months of, of getting the nomination. You will hold a vote within nine months. Um, if it goes to the floor, you know, you've got another X months to do it. Um, now, forget the logistics of, of how you would enforce that. But just in principle, if we could come up with a bipartisan agreement and be confident that um, successive presidents and, and senates would stick to it, uh, would you be in favor of something like that?
6: Well, let me I – mean the only way you could be confident that anyone would ever stick to it would be if it were a constitutional amendment.
9: That aside, just in –
6: I don't know what I don't think that means anything in principle because it would readily be jettisoned as soon as it became politically convenient to do so but I will say that any sort of proposal like that I think would have to contain I mean that's all giving by the Senate the Senate's giving to the President guarantees it would have to be accompanied I would think at a minimum by some guarantees from the President that he's really going to consult with the Senate members of both parties so that the Senate isn't uh, signing a, uh, a, a contract without consideration. That there there has to be, the Senate should not be promising the president, Act. they wouldn't do it on legislation. We're going to promise you a timetable on passing a bill you send us. Uh, word for word, we're going to either vote up or down on it within six months. Congress would never do that. Unless, perhaps, there was an understanding that the president would work with, senators or members of Congress uh, to develop the legislation. Then there might be talk of a timetable.
9: The so, president made his own guarantees not to the Senate, but to the country that I will fill, appoint someone to fill a vacancy within a year. Like
6: that. Well, those are worth about as much as President Bush's guarantees at the beginning of his term of office that he would encourage bipartisanship. So, I don't know. I think the agree, if the Senate's going to agree to something of any kind, they have to have an agreement from the president. What, why would the Senate unilaterally agree to timetables, well, uh, in any party. I,
4: well, I, 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 agree agree uh, I agree with the heart of what Simon said. Um, you know, in particular, uh, the very fact that the Senate has plenary power to establish its rules means it has plenary power to revise them. All this talk about uh, President Bush, though, being polarizing and supposedly uh, you know, n- not uh, you know, reaching out. Let's remember, among his first uh, uh, nominations were Roger Gregory. Um, to the Fourth Circuit, someone whom uh, President Clinton had recess-appointed to the Fourth Circuit. President Bush seems to have gotten no credit for that. There was also – I'm sorry, I forget the name of the judge right now, but there was a Second second Circuit judge. Barrington uh, Barrington,
5: Barrington, Barrington,
3: Parker. Barrington Parker, Parker. thank you.
4: Exact same thing. Now, frankly, I think the the administration was a little naive. I think they should have said, we're going to nominate this person. You go ahead and confirm him, and we'll we'll execute the commission. That is, actually do the act of appointment only after you've you've, uh, uh, confirmed folks for these spots. They didn't do so, but, you know, they got got nothing uh, out of this. And, you know, as I outlined at the beginning, I think uh, uh, the the record of obstruction on the Senate side, the unprecedented record, overwhelms any possible criticism of uh, President Bush as not being sufficiently accommodating.
7: Let me just add, though, just for the record that, um, I mean, I I would and and did give President Bush credit for the nomination of Roger Gregory, but, of course, he did it after the two senators from Virginia asked him to. So, um, you know, two Republican senators. Yes. Right, yeah. exactly. No, gr- yeah, two Republican senators. But the thing is, yeah. <laughs> George uh, Allen got
4: a lot of credit for that one, too.
7: Yeah. But, but I think it was to their credit they made the nomination. But that, so we, in a sense, it brings us full circle back to uh, whether, of course, there are two Republican senators he doesn't listen to, as we just found out today. I so think, let we'll, me just, can, I, can I say something sure, one last in the position?
2: You you don't solve political problems with schemes. You solve political problems with politics. Presidents get the things they want most, even out of Democratic Senates. Uh, The president really, and and he's got to get credit for this among conservatives and Republicans, he really wanted solid conservatives on the Supreme Court, and he got them. Uh, uh, when, When my nomination was going through the Judiciary Committee, he really wanted authorization from the Senate on on um, on military tribunals. He really wanted authorization of foreign intelligence. There was a war on after all, and he got it. And what if the president wants lower court nominees to be confirmed, then what he's got to do is want it that bad.
5: Well, thank you. Let me, um, I've learned three things today. This is not a Democratic fundraising luncheon. (laughs) That Mike Wallace is a remarkably good spirited person, and that we haven't resolved the disagreement over judges, and uh, there'll be plenty of disputes in the future. So, thank you very much for listening. It was a good luncheon.